Well, as Tina mentioned, we do begin a brand new sermon series today, and uh, we're tackling the book of Revelation. been asked many times over the years to tackle this book, and uh, never felt quite up to it. Uh, but you know what? Fools rush in where angels fear to tread, so here we go. It's quite an amazing book, the book of Revelation. Really, really provocative images and, and, uh, and ideas, the way things are described. And it's caught people's imagination down through the ages. Uh, I was a kid growing up in the 80s in high school, and uh, the British rock group Iron Maiden was just obsessed with the book of Revelation. They used tons of the ideas and the images in their song lyrics and then in their album covers, one of which was The Mark of the Beast in 82. And uh, we're going to flash that up. Pretty controversial uh, back in its day. Now, movies have also uh, run after lots of the different themes in Revelation, uh, one of which was the Omen movies in the 70s and early 80s. Went after the idea if the Antichrist was uh, really to come, he would have to be born and he would grow up in a family, someone who would adopt him. And of course, he would be the worst foster kid ever in all of history. And uh, he would make everyone's life awful. And that's exactly what the movies did. So uh, pop culture isn't the only one who's been fascinated by the book of Revelation. Christians have been fascinated by the book of Revelation as well. 1970, a book called The Late Great Planet Earth came out uh, by Hal Lindsey. And it would, over the next 20 years, sell 28 million copies. That's a lot of copies for a paperback book. So Hal Lindsey and his co-author, Carol C. Carlson, they compared end times biblical prophecy with what was going on in the world at that time. And uh, they came up with all kinds of uh, future scenarios Uh, They talked a lot about the rapture, the ideas that Christians would be pulled out of the world and the rest of the world would be left to suffer. Uh, And then when Jesus came back, um, he would establish something called a millennium, a a thousand-year reign. And they drew heavily on Daniel, Ezekiel, but primarily on the book of Revelation. Lindsay originally suggested the possibilities that all these climactic events might occur in the late 1980s, which he interpreted as one generation from the restoration of modern Israel, which was founded three years after the Second World War in 1948. Now, their whole approach uses some really faulty ideas in regards to properly reading the Bible. And since then, there have been a huge number of Christian books that have followed suit, including the really popular novels Uh, the Left Behind series. This fascination and wild speculation about the book of Revelation has been going on for a long time. So that way back in 1908, G.K. Chesterton, the brilliant uh, British author, uh, this is what he had to say. He said, And though St. John saw many strange monsters in his vision, he saw no creature so wild as one of his own commentators. That's fantastic. And it's very, very true. Now, all of this craziness has led a lot of Christians just to stay away from the book of Revelation. They basically say, I don't get it. It's weird. It seems irrelevant to my life. 
you know what? I'm just going to keep it there tucked away safely at the end of my Bible. I'm going to read some stuff that's a little easier to reply, to apply to my life. Now, here's the thing though. Skipping the book of Revelation is actually a tragedy. This is an incredible book of worship. We just heard a number of songs this morning written from the text of Revelation. It's in a it's an amazing book in terms of how do I follow Jesus when things are going bad, when things are in, in an awful state, when we're in a period of tribulation and trial. And most of all, it's an absolutely fascinating and important look where we kind of pull back the cover, pull back the veil, and see Jesus in all of his glory and all of his power and all of his majesty. So, how do we avoid the pitfalls and mistakes and give a proper reading and understanding so that we can live out the message of this book? Well, that is a fantastic question. That's what we're going to explore in our first point. I've entitled it Essential Guidelines. Guidelines are important in life, aren't they? We all need guidelines. In December 29th of 2017, in downtown Detroit... Uh, there was two guys that were needing money and they decided it would be a really brilliant idea to break into an electrical substation. And so they broke in there with the intention of cutting copper cables, stripping them, and then taking the copper and selling it. That is not a good idea. Just in case that thought had ever occurred to you. It didn't turn out for well for them. They actually both died. And Detroit TV News came and interviewed the police captain, Kyra Hope. And this is what she said. She said, these deaths are awful. These are gruesome deaths. The moment the men touched the transformer, they were killed instantly. And then she kind of looked into the camera and she said, I want the people of Detroit to hear me. If you are down on your luck in any kind of way, reach out to your local neighborhood police station. We have neighborhood officers who have resources of information we have lists of jobs available we are now employing social workers inside each uh, police precinct and she said because doing this kind of stuff <laughs> she goes there's no ifs ands or buts you break into one of these attempt to steal stuff and you will die Guidelines in life are a good thing. They keep us from doing harm to ourselves and to others. And as I prepared this series on the book of Revelation and chatted with people, I must have heard about 15 times already, oh yeah, everybody has a different interpretation of that book. Now, yes, that's true. People have done some really bizarre, weird things with the book. Our favorite new term around the office is wackadoodle. Uh, Katrina's daughter, Sydney, came up with that. I think I'm going to copyright it. It's amazing. Wackadoodle. It implies to so many things. So why have people done these wackadoodle interpretations of the book of Revelation? Precisely because they have ignored the simple guidelines for a solid reading and interpretation of this book. So here they are. I got four of them for you this morning. Number one, we need to ask the question, what did it mean to the original Years. This is something we need to always do when we read the Bible. So it turns out the book of Revelation was written by one of Jesus' disciples, John. One of his 12 disciples that had spent so much time 
with Jesus. This is written almost near the very end of the first century. John was probably the longest living of all of Jesus' disciples. And John had settled in what we today call Turkey, and then it was called the Asia Minor, and it was a province of the Roman Empire, strictly controlled by Rome. And John had been faithfully telling people about the good news, and seven different church congregations had been planted and had sprung up. And if we fail to understand that John is a pastor, he has got a pastor's heart, And the Romans didn't like what he was doing. They didn't like these Christian congregations popping up, and they heavily persecuted them. So they actually took John, and away from all these churches, they thought if we can take the leader, then everything will fall apart. And they took him, and they stuck him on the little prison island of Patmos, which is off the Turkish coast. Meanwhile, John gets this incredible revelation from Jesus, and he writes it back in part to the seven churches in what we think of today as Turkey. If you ignore all of that, then you start to go in really bizarre, weird directions with the book of Revelation. And I was thinking about that. I was like, why have people done that? And where are the majority of kind of bizarre interpretations of Revelation? Where do they come from? Well, they predominantly come from the Western world, from the United States, from Canada, Australia, New Zealand, these Western nations. And here's my little insight, I think. If you are reading the book of Revelation, you get to sit in your lazy boy chair, you got your latte beside you, you got maybe a plate of cookies, it's pretty easy to kind of skip over the stuff about what it's like to live in persecution and focus on the end times. Whereas if you live in war-torn southern Sudan, Or if you are a a Christian in Palestine, maybe in Lebanon, if you're in one of these war-torn places of the world, not too many of those Christians are producing long charts, predicting with world events when Jesus might come back. They are more concerned about living to the next day. And when they read that John's people were in severe persecution, the saints were undergoing persecution, they immediately resonate with that all right so that's the number one you have to ask what did it mean to the original hearers number two guideline we have to understand the word prophecy prophecy has two meanings the first one we're all familiar with it's foretelling the future but it also is foretelling right here right now about your life and my life And if you think about the Bible all the way back into the first half, all of the prophets from Jeremiah, Isaiah, Micah, on and on and on, they did both of these things. They had a lot to say to the people that were right around them. From the king in power, to the court, to the humblest farmer out in his field. All of those prophets had a lot to say about how to live faithfully before God each and every day. They also had things to say that God revealed to them about the future to give the people a sense of hope and to let them know what was going on. And this is exactly what we find in the book of Revelation. And here's what I'm realizing. If we completely concentrate on one of those to the exclusion of of the other, we kind of get unbalanced. 
if it's all about the foretelling, if it's all about the future, then over time what will happen is it will become, whether we consciously mean it or not, it will become, you know what? This thing's all about the end of the world. It really isn't relevant to my life. When I wake up Monday morning, got to take my kids to school or I have to go to work. And so if we concentrate completely on that side, we miss out on the everyday reality and the beauty and the power that Revelation has to speak to us each and every day. On the other hand, if we concentrate only on the foretelling and don't talk about all the big overarching ideas, the fact that very clearly Jesus is coming back, Jesus will set this world right, there will be judgment, Jesus will bring justice, then we are ignoring the big overarching story. And when we do that, we unfortunately lose out on this incredible sense of comfort, of reassurance, of confidence that the book of Revelation gives us that God is still in control. All right, there's our first two. Number three, we got to get our heads around the genre. There's a weird word, genre. We don't use that every day. What does that mean? Well, think about movies for a second. I want to show you a picture of one of my favorite movies. It's called 310 to Yuma. And uh, great movie, great movie. Um, explores a whole bunch of morality ideas, what's right and wrong. And uh, the farmer guy in it is actually uh, a Christian, and, and it kind of shows him in the worst crisis, what would you do kind of thing. But that's a freebie, that's beside the point. All I want you to do this morning is look at those pictures in that movie poster and just somebody yell out, what kind of movie is this? A Western, well done. You got cowboy hats, you got guns, you got horses. That is a Western. All right, next one. All right, so you have Agatha Christie's famous The Murder on the Orient Express. What kind of movie are we talking about here? Murder mystery. Excellent, excellent. A little freebie for you. The, don't watch the new one that came out with Johnny Depp. Watch this one. Uh, 1974. It's absolute classic. Got Sean Connery in it. And Albert Finney. And he is Hercule Poirot, the detective. He does an unbelievable job. And in the last eight and a half minutes, he wraps up the whole mystery and explains it. And it's just him talking on the camera on the train. And you would think, how can any actor hold my attention? But you're riveted to him as he explains it. Phenomenal movie. Okay, one more. What, what kind of movie do we have here? Sci-fi, science fiction. We got some aliens. We got spaceships, all that kind of stuff. So we understand this idea of genre when we come to watch a movie. So if your friend calls you up and says, hey, well, let's go to the movie. There's an awesome Western that came out. You know, you kind of already know in your head what kind of things you're going to see. Well, it's exactly the same when we come to the Bible. The Bible has different genres. Some parts of the Bible, like First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, are a little bit more straightforward history. Books like Proverbs or wisdom literature, where we read these incredibly wise, tried, tested, and true sayings. And when we come to the book of Psalms, we encounter something different. I want to read a little section of Psalm 91 to you. It says, I will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. 
Surely he will save you from the fowler's snare and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you will find refuge. Now when we read that, we almost automatically in our brains go, oh, this is poetry. It would be a horrendous misreading of Psalm 91 to go, well, clearly God is a giant chicken in the sky. I mean, it says right there, he's got feathers. That is misunderstanding the genre of the book you're reading. We go, no, of course, it's a metaphor. It means just like that mother bird gathers us and gives that safety and comfort, so God does that for us. So, there's all these different genres in the Bible, and there's one more. It's called apocalyptic literature. Ah, what in the world does that mean? Well, you're familiar with the word apocalypse. That's actually a Greek word. It comes straight over from Greek into English. And we kind of think apocalypse means the end of the world. Well, we've made it be that, but the actual word, its primary meaning is to reveal, to pull back the veil, to show us something. So these are actually the first three words of the book of Revelation in Greek. Apocalypsis Jesu Christu. The apocalypse of and from Jesus Christ. Now, this idea of apocalyptic literature takes its name from that. And it's summarized really well by a guy named Michael Wilcock in his book, The Message of Revelation. I want to read this to you. It says, Apocalyptic literature is a whole class of Jewish religious writings which appeared chiefly between 200 B.C. and 100 A.D., so about a 300-year period. And it says a comparison between Revelation and non-biblical books of this type shows incredible similarities, truths which could not be discovered by normal investigation. Things about the future, about the spiritual realm, are unveiled usually through the agency of angels, with a wealth of bizarre symbolism, stars, mountains, monsters, demons, and complex number schemes. So this is the genre of apocalyptic literature. When you open the Bible, you see it in the back half of Daniel, a little bit in Ezekiel, and in the book of Revelation. And when we get our brains around that, then we understand, just like I'm going to go see a sci-fi film in the theater, I'm ready for it. Well, just like that, we need to be ready for Revelation. All right, fourth guideline. Don't lose the forest for the trees. As we travel through this book, as we dig into it over the next couple months, we're going to pull back and we're going to get into all kinds of cool descriptions and details, all these things. And it will be easy for us to lose kind of the forest for the trees. There's a great story of a bunch of uh, seminary students, those Christian grad students. They're at a seminary, and they're doing lots of studying and everything, and there was about six of them. They said, you know what? we got to work in some exercise here. We're doing so much book study. Uh, let's go down and see if we can find a play to, place to play basketball. So they found a local school and ended up talking to the janitor, a really sweet guy. And they said, here's the deal. We're students. We don't have much money, but we need a place to play basketball. And uh, whatever night you're here cleaning the gym, which turns out to be Wednesday night, they said, uh, could, could we use the gym? The guy says, absolutely, come down for two hours. Do you guys play basketball? He goes, 
So let me get this straight. Your students at like some sort of Christian grad school, yeah? He goes, well, if you give me your Bible to read, you guys can play basketball and I'll read the Bible. They said, sure, sounds like a great deal. And so they get into this. They're playing week by week. And uh, finally, one of the students walks over to the janitor and he says, so, what have you, what have you been reading in the Bible? The guy says, oh, I'm reading the book of Revelation. And he kind of laughs. He goes, no, no, what are you reading? He thinks, seriously, I'm reading Revelation. And the student had heard one of his profs say, you know what, nobody gets this book right. Nobody understands it. And so kind of a little bit sarcastically, he goes, okay, so do you understand what you're reading? The guy says, oh, yeah. And the student's a little taken aback, amazed. He goes, okay, so tell me, what is the book all about? And the janitor kind of looks around, looks to his left, looks to his right, and then he leans into the student's ear and he whispers, Jesus wins. And he got it. That's the point. And in fact, it's even one step better than that. It's not Jesus wins, it's Jesus has already won. And that's part of the beauty and power of studying this book. We gain this sense, this overwhelming confidence. You know what? Jesus still on the throne. He's in control. So what are our four guidelines? Number one, what did it mean to the original hearers? Number two, understand the word prophecy. Number three, get our heads around the genre. Number four, don't lose the forest for the trees. Okay, we've done really well. Now we're going to dive in to the opening, verses 1, 1 to 3. And Dan is going to read that for us. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants, what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take it to heart. What, it is, what is written in it? Because the time is near. All right, those are the first three verses. Now what I discovered this week is there are three amazing gems of insight in those first three verses. So I just, Dan got, just read the NIV, the New International Version. It said it's the revelation from Jesus Christ. Another popular version is the New Living Translation. It says it's a revelation from Jesus Christ. But if you go over to the, Eng, New, the English Standard Version, sorry, it says it's the revelation of of Jesus Christ. King James says the same thing. So what gives? Is it from Jesus or is it of Jesus? Well, turns out they're both right. I'm going to get really nerdy on you here for about 60 seconds, but hang in there. You'll see this is worth it. Revelation was written in common Greek in the first century. Now, when you and I want to say that we own something or we have possession of it, we say, Darren apostrophe s book so it's darren's book i am the owner of the book that's not what greek does they have four different cases nominative genitive dative accusative and the genitive case is the one that shows possession so they put these little endings on the end of their words if it's a subjective genitive it means it's the revelation from jesus christ if it's objective it means it's the revelation 
of Jesus Christ. You don't need to remember any of that, except here's the cool thing. There's only one time in Greek when both of those meanings come together at the same place, and it's in the title of a book or a letter, which is exactly what that is. This is where we get the title for the book, Revelation, and those are called plenary genitives. So how does that matter? Well, it gives us this amazing insight that it's both the revelation from Jesus Christ and of Jesus Christ. When it's the revelation from Jesus Christ, it tells us and reminds us that it's the ultimate credible source. If you can't trust Jesus, who can you trust? This is the credible source of this book. Secondly, if it's of Jesus Christ, then it tells us that the whole point of the book, in some measure, is to reveal him, to pull back the veil. What is Jesus really like when you see him in all of his power, all of his majesty, all of his glory? So I think that's pretty amazing. First three words tells us that. And I think it actually has a practical effect in our lives. Because you know what? Getting a fresh glimpse of who Jesus is tends to change us. Nothing can give us passion to follow Jesus with all we've got like a fresh glimpse of who he truly is. Nothing gives us the comfort to know that he has got ultimately everything in control like a fresh glimpse of Jesus. And on the challenge side, nothing gives us a kick in the rear end to get going in our Christian walk like a fresh glimpse of Jesus. So this revelation is both from Jesus and about him. All right, the second gem. Greek word, it's called dexai. And it means to exhibit something that can be understood by one or more of the senses. This is a multi-sensory. And so right after those first three word introduction, it says, which God gave to show through a variety of senses that which must take place. And I love this because it's totally true when you pick up the book of Revelation. All of a sudden, we're going to meet Jesus. He is this incredible description we're going to see next week. He's in this blazing white, so white you can hardly look at it. And his eyes are, are on fire. And there's images of a sword coming out of his mouth. All this crazy stuff. And here's what happens. The the book of Revelation is meant to be read aloud. It's meant to be listened to. When it was first given out, they didn't all have their own copy. They had to get together, and it was read out loud to them. And these images that we hear, these images that we read, they're so shocking and so weird and so crazy that they actually do something amazing. They, they start to get down inside of us, and they move from our heads to our hearts. And even after we are long done exploring this book, those images will resonate and stay in our hearts. So it's a multi-sensory experience. And then finally, gem number three. This is surprising when I realized this this week. When we take time to study the book of Revelation, when we understand it and interpret it, when we apply it to our lives and live it out, then Jesus has a promise for us. And this is his promise. I translated it from Greek this week. It's that there is an especially favored blessing 
on the reader of this book. When we hear it, understand it, and obey it. Now, I don't know about you, but I could use a little bit of especially favored blessing in my life right now. As I mentioned before, I've chatted with people as I've gotten ready to do this series. And a lot of people told me, yeah, yeah, I kind of like the book of Revelation, but I really haven't read it. It kind of is there at the end of my Bible, and and I really don't pay a lot of attention to it if I'm being honest. So here's the thing. What if by not reading it, by ignoring it, by keeping it down there, you and I have missed out on an especially favored blessing of God? You're looking at me like I made that up. It's right there in your own Bible. Read it. It's a little less exciting in English, but it still works. It says, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of these prophecies. Blessed are those who hear it, take it to heart, because the time is near. All right, so we've covered a lot of ground. Where have we been so far? Well, we laid out our four ground rules for reading and understanding. What did it mean to the original hearers? We've got to understand the word prophecy. We've got to get our heads around the genre. We don't want to lose the forest for the trees. And then we've seen these three gems in the first three verses. Message of the book is both from Jesus and about Jesus. Message of the book is given to us in a multi-sensory way. And those powerful images and symbols will stay with us even after we're done exploring this book. And see, we are promised an especially favored blessing as we read it, understand it, and apply it to our lives. All right, one final section to go. We're going to jump into the last five verses, and Dan is going to read that for us. To the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn of the, from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all peoples on the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. What jumps out at me right away in those five verses is what I'm calling the two bookends of hope. First bookend on this side is what Jesus did 2,000 years ago on a cross in the middle of Jerusalem. I want to listen, list the phrases that allude to that. It says the firstborn from the dead. Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. And today, Jesus is the only person who has ever been resurrected from the dead. Lazarus and others were revived for a while, lived for 30 years, but they died again. Jesus is the only one resurrected to eternal life. Then it says, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Part of the central work that Jesus did on the cross for us. Paying that debt of sin, restoring you and I back into right relationship with God. Then it says, and every eye will see him. 
even those who pierced him. Recalling some of the details of the crucifixion of Jesus, where the Roman soldiers stabbed him with a spear in the side, where they drove the spikes through his hands and his nails through his feet. Without Jesus' work on the cross, without his central act of love at the center of history, you and I actually have no legitimate basis for hope. It's all based on that. So that's one bookend. The amazing work Jesus did on the cross. And then there's a second bookend. It says, grace and peace to you from him who is, who was, and who is to come. Jesus is coming back again. And further it says, look, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. You know, the second coming of Jesus isn't kind of a a metaphor or a symbol of hope. It's actual reality. Jesus is literally coming back again. And when you look around our world and we see war and climate change and crazy world dictators and out-of-control American presidents and moral decay in society and the opioid drug crisis here in British Columbia, all of it's pretty daunting. It's pretty overwhelming. Makes us pretty discouraged. Maybe makes us want to give up. But then along comes the book of Revelation with these amazing bookends and says, Jesus has got history covered. He, he paid the price at one end and He's coming back on the other. One day, Jesus will right every wrong, balance the scales of justice, wipe every tear from our eyes, and bring us into peace, wholeness, restoration, and the joy we long for. You and I are here right now, September of 2018, and we stand between the two great bookends, the good news of the gospel on one end and the good news of Jesus' second coming on the other. He's got us covered. No matter what we go through in life, no matter what pains us in our hearts, no matter what brings us sorrow, this is what I know to be true. Jesus died to give us life and He is coming back to give us eternal life. That's so amazing. Let me say it one more time. Jesus died to give us life and He is coming back to give us eternal life. If that doesn't bring hope in your heart, if that doesn't get you motivated to live for him you better check for a pulse i think we're ready to dive into this amazing book are you amen all right i believe